Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we're going to be talking about the holy smokes national security bill that China passed regarding Hong Kong, and we're going to get deep into it today. Before we get started, I want to make the exciting announcement that my favorite Agora podcaster, besides Xander, of course, is back. (laughs) David Crowther of the History of England was on sabbatical. I was very, very sad about it, but he is back and he's in the middle of the Tudors. It is dramatic. It's crazy. We've been waiting for him to come back for a long time. Those of you who follow him know that, you know, there was a bit of a health scare. He's super healthy. We've actually talked to him recently. He's doing great. Go check out the History of England. Those of you who love history, which if you're an Agora fan, you probably do. So historyofengland.com. So today we're getting into more about what's going on in Hong Kong and more specifically the national security law that was really very quickly rushed and passed. Like it was only announced, and we'll get into the detail about this later in the show, but about a month ago and the public wasn't allowed to see it. And then it was rushed through and all of these protests that have been going on since last year just have really faced a very violent reprisal and crackdown by the Hong Kong police and essentially, you know, exercising Beijing's authority. Yeah. And the rather than get into the details right away, as we got deeper and deeper into this, um, we we realized, you know, we, we kept rearranging the notes over and over again, saying, wow, we need some context here. We need some context here. And, you know, at some point we were almost at the point where it was like, well, in the beginning, there was a big black void. And then, you know, and then this bright flash of light and, and a bunch of galaxies started forming and stuff. But but we, we decided to get back to about the 200s BC. And, and of course, there will get more detail as we get closer. But there's a lot of history that's really important here for understanding what on earth is going on, why this is a big deal, why were there protests in the first place. So we're going to start with some history. And I think one of the one of the things I want to mention about these notes, we've got seven pages of them. They're they're better organized than we've ever done before. I think in part because we actually knew so little about this going in and realized, holy smokes, we're learning a lot as we go. So we had to organize our notes it, it, just, just for ourselves. And we decided uh, we should actually do this more often. 
because we've gotten some feedback that there's a lot of people that love to read as well as listen, uh, either afterward or, or reading along or instead. And, you know, a lot of people who have friends that go like, oh, I don't listen to podcasts. So please do, you know, longtime listeners, please do give us some feedback on this. So go to the website, reconsidermedia.com. Go to the podcast section, check out the Hong Kong National Security Bill episode uh, and, and let us know what you think of the notes. Uh, if you think they're great, send them to your friends. And what we're also going to be doing with these is sending them out as part of our newsletter. So if you just want to get them rather than have to go to the website all the time, you can sign up for the newsletter on the website. The only thing you, you ever you only ever hear from just me and Xander directly. So don't worry about spam or anything. Yeah, exactly. So. If you haven't joined the Facebook group yet, we've been getting more active there and both having conversations and sort of encourage, well, we're ha- like Eric and I have been having conversations with all of you, but also trying to ask questions to get the consider community to engage in different ways with one another. And I really do think that at this moment in, in history, uh, there's, we, we sure could afford to have some active Respectful yelling. engagement oh, with each other sorry. right now. Yeah. I, thought, I thought you were killing, gonna, killing, yeah. killing, yelling killing, and murder. screaming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we'll love to see you in there. Ask us questions and we'll ask, ask some of you. All right. But let's dig into Hong Kong yes. now, right? There have been these protests going on for a year and um, police have just cracked down very hard on them. So, what is the context that's necessary, necessary to understand? Why Beijing responded so forcefully? Why are these protests going on at all? And what might the future hold? As Eric mentioned, uh, we're not going to you know, go back to the birth of the universe, but there is so much history in China. And frankly, understanding why and how Beijing acted requires an understanding of the length of China's history. So that's, it's, it's, it's part and parcel of understanding the Communist Party's motivations. So, Eric, take us back to 200 BC. Yeah. So, I mean, even before that, China's <laughs> China's uh, historical memory goes back 5,000 years. You know, so literally back into the uh, pre-Bronze Age, right? So we're talking literally Stone Age and uh, or or end of the Stone Age, Bronze. You know, and and uh, Bronze Age China just transitioned into Iron Age China into classical China, and and. Of course, China has fragmented and reformed and been taken over and taken over other stuff. And in one of its kind of waves of expansion in the 200s BC, it took over large parts of southern China, including Hong Kong, Macau, Shenzhen, weren't called that back then, but then, but generally the Guangdong region. And, uh, you know, it was part of China or part of the southern Southern kingdoms of China when there were southern kingdoms of China. Uh, you can also go check out uh, Chris's history of China, also part of the Agora Podcast Network, if you want all of that. But um, it's been part of China one way or another for literally 2000 plus years. So that's a long time, except for a comparatively brief period, if, you've, if you're China, of a little over, of a little over 100 years. Britain uh, during the first and second opium wars, uh, which started because Britain was uh, trading opium to China in order to balance a trade imbalance that they had because mercantilism was a thing back then. Uh, Whenever thought trade balances were, you know, you had to have net exports. So they're like, what can we export? Opium. Great. 
China, Chinese government was like, please stop. Britain said, no way. Got in a fight. Britain wins. Um, that, that's the drunk history version. And in the first Opium War, the Chinese cede Hong Kong itself, the island, to Britain. In the second Opium War, uh, Kowloon, which is the peninsula uh, sticking out of, uh, you know, the kind of end of the peninsula sticking out, is ceded to Britain as part of treaties. And then in 1898, Britain leases the New Territories, which is a whole bunch of uh, islands and some land around Hong Kong, essentially to create a buffer zone and protect Hong Kong from China. Uh, And uh, it becomes a trading post, a British colony and trading post along, you know, alongside Singapore as part of Europe's trade in the area. Yeah, and I, if, for or for those uh, who um, maybe haven't stared at a map of Hong Kong, we'll have just sort of like a you know ten thousand foot Google map uh, layout of where Hong Kong is, and you can take a look at it when you have the opportunity to. But a lot makes sense when you see where Hong Kong is in relation to the rest of Southeast mm-hmm. Asia. It's a straight shot if you head west, just right out to the Pacific Ocean in the little passage between Taiwan and the Philippines. east. And it's sort of like halfway up, not really halfway up the coast, but it's, it's close enough to, it's like right on the stop if you're going south to go through the Malacca Straits, which is past Asia into the Indian Ocean. It's kind of like in that trade channel and it's in the trade channel of, you know, everything that the Koreas and Japan would be trading um, with either the rest of Southeast Asia or Europe. So it's, it's really very strategically located, and that's why Britain wanted it. I wanted to harp a little bit more on the Opium War stuff, because I, I think it is such a fascinating piece of history and critical to understanding Beijing's mindset mm-hmm. when it comes to everything with the U.S. Uh, my, for, uh, my colleague, uh, Jacob... I, so we're, we're working together again. Yeah. Jacob Shapiro of Perch Perspectives who uh, I used to work with at Geopolitical Futures, wrote a great piece at Geopolitical Futures, and we'll include a link here, called The Third Opium War, about the U.S. and China's current relations. And really, it's, it's, it's one of the best pieces of like geopolitical analysis I've ever read. And That's saying a lot. You've yeah, read a lot. It's, very, it's, just, it's, it's a very compelling piece of writing. And a big part of it focuses on the trade balance, Eric, that you mentioned a moment ago that developed sort of in the 17th and 18th centuries. Because as we know, uh, European colonies kind of started going out more and more in the 16th century. And eventually the Portuguese and, and British got to India and beyond and Southeast Asia. And by the time you're in the 17th century, there are already trade routes established with India and Southeast Asia, not really with China. China was still pretty closed up. But um, as more and more of specifically silk and tea began to be imported from India to to England, uh, more British silver was sent abroad in order to pay for those imports. So it really was a balance of payments, like an economic issue that drove Great Britain to seek a a consumer's market in China for something so that they could sell somewheres and basically get their their silver back. And silk and tea, um, well, sorry, 
silicon tea is what they were importing, but opium, uh, which could be grown sort of in certain parts of India, it was easy to move that into China and sell that to new consumers there um, through the English East India Company. And then with, with that, uh, with that trade, pull silver back into the, um, into the British economy. So in terms of net change in raw silk and tea in the course of like a hundred years in the mid 17th century, it took each took up a fraction of a percent of the East India, the English East India companies imports to Europe. And a hundred years later, those two items combined made up for it's over a third of all of the English English East India companies imports. So they were, really were kind of bleeding silver. And since the pound was explicitly based on the value of silver, they were concerned that that could you know, imperil their economy if the British pound became weaker and they had to pay back all of the debt that they incurred first in the Seven Years' War, which happened in the middle of the 18th century and then later during the Napoleonic Wars. But at that point, they'd already acquired um, quite a bit of debt. So the UK, First Great Britain and then the UK, really needed to find a way to get its silver back. And that's what drove them to want to sell opium to China. And uh, the Chinese emperor said, no, we don't want that. Um, you're just going to get us all addicted to this stuff. That's not cool. We're not down with that. And really restricted a lot of trade that um, it made it very difficult for Great Britain to conduct trade in China. I mean, it was allowed to, and some other European powers had very limited access to China's market, but it was limited. Uh, and at one point, uh, since Great British, um, British traders just continued to do it, a substantial sum of opium was confiscated by the Chinese government. And that's actually what led to the first opium war because Great Britain had its cost its belly and said, okay, well, you know, that's an act of war, blah, blah, blah. And it was in the course of, I forget exactly, exactly when the, the treaty was signed that ceded parts of Hong Kong. Like 1842, to, I think. So it was at the end of the first opium war then, yeah. which started in 1839. Yeah. So, and that was really, in a lot of ways, the beginning of the decline of China in the modern age was when it was opened to, uh, to Europe. So all of this is in the back of Beijing's mind right now, after having been subject to the wills and whims of Western powers for well over 100 years, and Hong Kong going a different route because of British influence uh, with a more capitalistic system and more of a liberal democracy, China still feels threatened in a way Beijing feels threatened that 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 um, that divided presence is there and that Hong Kong, even though it's part of this one China, two systems thing, the fact that it can be so different and that there there can be what it considers to be subversive and secessionist movements in Hong Kong that could potentially spread. That's that's how Beijing is looking at all of these protests. Yes. Yeah. China historically weak when divided, historically weak when, you know, and and. These are a little bit self-feeding, but historically weak when occupied and China's we'll get back to this. But but, you know, the way that I've always studied it and I, I studied it with a bunch of you know China experts at MIT was that China's overriding geopolitical need is integrity. Right. And so they're thinking of Hong Kong in terms of that integrity uh, because of what happened. Now, let's. Let's zoom through the rest of the history that led us to about 2019. So Hong Kong started to grow a little bit wealthier 
during Britain's occupation due to it becoming a trade a trade center. 1941, Japanese show up, occupy it, and the population is cut in half, in part because a lot of people flee, and in part because a lot of people are murdered by the Japanese. It was as brutal and horrible as in many other parts of China. The Brit- the, a joint Chinese-British force takes it back in 1945. I don't know the details, but interestingly, everyone is fine at the time with Britain holding on to it, probably because of the civil war going on in China immediately. And a lot of folks fled the Civil War and then the Great Leap Forward and then the the Cultural Revolution and all the purges and all the horror that happened during the early parts of the communist regime. Lots of people flee. So so Hong Kong's population starts to explode. And it also becomes a bit of an industrial center where, you know, because of access to cheaper labor and uh, certain materials in the region, they start building stuff. So a bunch of money's made. 1973, China opens. Uh, remember Mr. Kissinger and Nixon? And then there's a lot of reason to move that manufacturing further inland, uh, where it's even cheaper and uh, has access to a bunch of other stuff. And so, and so Taiwan, sorry, not Taiwan, Hong Kong becomes more of a financial center because the financial institutions needed to manage this more sophisticated economy had already buttoned been put in place. It becomes a banking center for Southeast Asia and a trade center for Southeast Asia in particular because uh, it's able to get, because it's part of Britain, it's able to get more favorable trade deals with places like the United States than China. And uh, as probably a lot of us know, a lot of material uh, through basically like two weeks ago moved through Hong Kong. China would trade it to Hong Kong and Hong Kong would trade it onward because Hong Kong had a better uh, trade deal with a lot of the West than China, as we'll learn, that's changing. And then in 1984, this very important thing was signed, uh, which was a, the Sino-British Joint Declaration on Hong Kong, in which Britain says, okay, we'll give you Hong Kong in 1990, uh, all of Hong Kong in 1997, not just the new territories lease, but that there would be, there's, there's a treaty signed that agreed there'd be one country, two systems, Hong Kong being capitalist and liberal, and that uh, Hong Kong would maintain its capitalist liberal independence uh, for 50 years after that. Since the handover, uh, Beijing has declared this treaty invalid and expired and void, and this is going to become a sticking point over the last few weeks. And after this, so after this 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration, we'll just call it the Joint Declaration, because again, we're going to come back to this. Uh, lots of people left Hong Kong because they were British, not citizens. I'm oh, sorry, not UK citizens, but they were people, you know, UK people that uh, could get a path to citizenship, perhaps, which we'll be talking about. And this this treaty, uh, since you know, uh, uh, with the kerfuffle over the past few weeks, is being repeatedly cited by the G7, the United States, the UK, saying that China is violating it right now. Even Marco Rubio, a senator from the United States, uh, is citing it. And of course, this is not the only time that China is is pretty transparently ignoring treaties that it signed or directives from the international community that it signed up for when not convenient. Xander, I know you've got a few thoughts on this. Yeah, we did a show on this a couple of years back. On it was it's called UN Clause, the UN uh, Convention for the Law of the Sea. And there's this challenge between the Philippines and China as to how certain parts of the South China Sea could. And should be used. 
And China lost the ruling and just basically hasn't paid much attention to it. because. And this is the challenge with international organizations like this, right? Because you say you're violating some rule or norm and the violating party says, okay, make me stop. And if you don't have any power to do it, then what's going to happen? And then China keeps uh, in different ways harassing the Philippines in places like Scarborough Shoal to this day. And we'll have links to some of those those um, episodes that we did on this issue in the show notes. But in 1997, the handover from Great Britain to, to the to the People's Republic PRC yeah. takes place, and this this thing called the Basic Law, which we'll get into in more detail, was passed at that time, and that's essentially the original set of rules that were set up to govern Hong Kong with a separate set of laws than those that are that exist in China in mainland China. So there was an elected legislation. There were you know protections of capital that didn't exist in mainland China. China civil rights, all that good mm. stuff. And uh, immediately, China. So these basic law, the basic law was set up in 1994 before the handoff, and so Hong Kong already had its own set of leaders. And right away, China goes ahead and appoints its own folks to run the show in 1997 on some technicality. And there's been political strife between Hong Kong and Beijing ever since. And a lot of tug of war between pro-Beijing groups in Hong Kong, because they do exist, and demo, you know, what are sometimes called pan-democracy groups, and I believe that's due to a translation, but they're essentially the, the Democrats or the you know, pro-civil liberties groups, and they go, they go back and forth a lot. Um, and there is a small independence movement that seems to have grown recently, and those folks are all you know, now called, being called secessionists. But so over the past 23 years, You've had this tension between Hong Kong and Beijing, and I forget if we're going to talk about this later, but um, part of the problem, part of the reason for the tension is it seems that most Hong Kongers are very kind of pro you know, pro kind of keeping the basic law, keeping democracy, keeping civil rights, or keeping a form of democracy because they only have a form of it. Uh, but because they only have a form of it, the chief executive of Hong Kong, who's Carrie Lam right now, uh, is essentially always pick you know a, a pro Beijing person no matter what, um, and even when the the pro democracy folks win big in the legislation, uh, only half the legislature is elected. So it means that, for example, in this most recent election, even though they won big, they can't you know they won huge in the actual vote. They can't control everything that happens, um, and so it limits uh, Hong Kong's ability to do what it wants through legislation which we're going to get back to how that influences the a kind of uh, political culture of protest in Hong Kong. Right. So there have been protests in Hong Kong before, but the current strain, if you want to call that, or, or sort of the current momentum really began last year. And these were really, really big protests. I mean, some of the you can go online and see the photos um, yourself because there's a lot of aerial uh, photographs of the protests in Hong Kong. But it's one of those he said, she said things where, you know, the protest organizers will say that there were 18 billion people there and the police said, huh, no one showed up. Yeah. Um, but even the low, low end estimates that the police offered are, are frankly mind boggling. Of So last June or was it? Yeah, I think it was last June when some of the biggest protests took place and some of the protesters, uh, protest leaders were saying that something like 2 million people attended the protests. 
Whereas the police said it was only three hundred and forty thousand or something like that. Only yeah. right. And I've seen some. Es- um, yeah, I've seen some independent estimates that um, at some point in the protests, like one in six people living in Hong Kong were there, which is still below right, that two million. Yeah, yeah. The population of Hong Kong about seven and a half million people. So a huge portion of the polis was out on the street protesting this extradition law and. The extradition law that started the protests in 2019 is, is not the same one that kind of got rushed to be passed recently. The, um, or actually, it, it, if, it's, if it's the same it's one, the same. there have been meaningful changes, it right? Is, okay, it's yeah. definitely not the same one. The extradition law was something that the Hong Kong legislation had proposed that would allow, uh, that, would, that would, you know, extradition is always mutual. So it set up mutual extradition between Hong Kong and Taiwan and Hong Kong and the mainland. And a lot of Hong Kongers were really worried about this because it would um, it could mean that people who especially people who had fled to Hong Kong, you know, that were political enemies of Beijing, but also other Hong Kongers who are political enemies of Beijing could be uh, extradited to Beijing and in there, you know, disappear. And so they saw it as a way of Beijing asserting more of its dominance over Hong Kong and putting, you know, putting the, the, you know, putting the, the free speech rights, which are more limited than in the United States, but the free speech rights and the, and the right to, you know, kind of political organization and assembly and all that stuff at major risk inside Hong Kong. And so huge protests against that went on for ages, tried to be brutally repressed, kept going, right? You guys have all seen the videos of, of the umbrellas, uh, which is not the umbrella revolution. That was 2014. That was in response to a different law, um, which they didn't win this, that law restricted democratic participation, but they did actually win one thing that the protesters did win in 2019. One thing they wanted, which was the total withdrawal of the extradition bill. Right. So the initial bill that set off the current wave of protests in mid 2019 was in fact withdrawn in I think it was late September 2019 yes. by Carrie Lam. Yeah. Right. And the problem and the, the problem. So so why didn't it end there? It was because the protesters actually set up uh, had five demands, including that like the official term for the protest be changed from riots to protests in the Hong Kong government's uh, wording, which is actually really important based on the law, because riots bad. Protests are OK. Riots are not that political prisoners be released. And that a few other things happened, but um, the political prisoners were not released. The, um, you know, the, the police were, oh, and, and basically like, you know, kind of punishment for police brutality or, or consequences for police brutality. These things did not happen. So the protests actually kept going after the withdrawal. And Carrie Lamb was hoping that the withdrawal would, would shut down the protests. Everyone could move on, but they didn't quiet down. And that became a problem. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right. So now we're back up to sort of the most recent events, which we've already mentioned. A new law, which is referred to as the National Security Law, the NSL, was essentially uh, rubber stamped by the Hong Kong legislature. It was it was rushed forward by Beijing, and uh, it was basically not even made public before it was not certainly not in its time its entirety by the time um, it was approved. So now we're back up to the modern day, more or less, and we can get into some of the hairy details of what this most recent and NSL, which is the new reality for Hong Kong, uh, to be completely frank, because Beijing has the power. And if it wants to exert, you know, by force, its control over Hong Kong, the, the reality of the situation is no one else is going to step in to do anything about it, right? Why, why would the U.S. fight China over Hong Kong? Now, there have been some measures uh, in the world of trade that we'll get to, but it really does look at this, at this point like China has... Um, maybe not effectively finished consolidating Hong Kong, but Hong Kong is now back a part of mainland China. And uh, this NSL is pretty, uh, I know we usually forego editorializing here, but it's kind of creepy. And you know, my whole background, or at least longtime listeners will know my aversion to intrusions of privacy. But here's just a couple of things that the new NSL um, allows the law enforcement in Hong Kong to well, do. And law First, enforcement from Beijing. Just That's important. right. It's both. Yes, it's both. So yeah. Beijing now has its own law enforcement arm in Hong Kong, which it previously officially did not. Right. So the Hong Kong police that in a lot of ways are controlled by Beijing are there and actual you know, Chinese uh, police enforcement or military, who, who really knows the exact details, but Beijing has sent people there with guns. So now the new NSL makes, makes it officially a crime to participate in secession, subversion, you know, collusion with foreign forces, and um, of course, terrorism, but terrorism was, you know, all of these things are always illegal in well, China. And they're very all of these broadly things defined. Are now, they're, they're very broadly defined. And the maximum penalty is very severe. It's life in prison. And lots of people have already started to be rounded up. Lots of protesters have already been rounded up for secessionist uh, crimes. Yeah. Remember that, sub, you know, let's think of the word secession, right? Well, that's, you know, that's calling for some form, you know, calling for independence. What is subversion? Well, that's, that could be defined as, well, any criticism of the Chinese government is subversion. Right. There's a reason we don't have anti-subversion laws in the United States or, or a lot of other places, because it basically means you can't criticize the government. You can't say anything bad. And um, so in addition to that, you know, we we've we mentioned the security, uh, the police, you know, the Beijing security office in Hong Kong 
some cases can just be sent and tried to mainland China if they're part of this secession subversion terrorism thing. I know, by the way, damaging, intentionally damaging public transport facilities is one thing that is considered terrorism. So Hong Kong's so like graffiti in in the metro station potentially yeah. could be life in prison. Right. Yep, and so the. The Hong Kong chief executive can choose to appoint judges at any time at her whim to hear national security cases. So there's no independent judiciary anymore. Beijing will have power to over how this law will be interpreted uh, rather than any Hong Kong judicial or policy body. And so if the law conflicts with if this law conflicts with Hong Kong law and it was passed first in Beijing uh, and then and then shuffled over to Hong Kong, if it conflicts with any Hong Kong law, the Beijing law takes priority. Some trials will be heard behind closed doors, uh, which is would be new for Hong Kong. People suspected of breaking the law can be wiretapped and put under surveillance, which, you know, uh, happens in the U.S., but with a warrant, which uh, which you don't need anymore in Beijing. And it will also apply to non-permanent residents and people from outside Hong Kong. Uh, so, you know, basically don't show in. And this is to prevent, you know, foreign interference. So don't don't show, you know, if you're traveling to Hong Kong, don't join a protest. So we'll get into some more details about this law and how the world is reacting. But what we want to do is talk about kind of the, the backdrop of this and, and how Beijing was able to do this and, and sort of why now. And because the, you know, you, you kind of wonder, like, why didn't they just bother doing this before? And one of the things that made this feel so urgent to Beijing, remember earlier Xander was talking about the most important, you know, that, that, that Beijing is seriously concerned about you know, losing any territory or, or having, you know, sedition within its ranks, um, in particular because it has such a, uh, you know, damaged or, you know, it has it's, it's still recovering from its damage from its what it calls its century of shame, which ended in 1945. So from the first opium war to 1945 uh, of being dominated externally. And so national security is a big thing in China. And what was happening during these protests? Well, one, the. Uh, people protesting were asking for help from the United Kingdom and the United States. So they were like inviting what, you know, from Beijing's perspective is foreign interference in China. And China's like, whoa, right? That sets off a bunch of alarms. And then the other thing was the most popular slogan became, quote, liberate Hong Kong, revolution of our times. Right. And so and people are waving American flags while they're chanting this. And so Beijing's looking at this going, this has gotten totally out of control. People are talking about seceding. They're talking about getting foreign powers involved. And the Hong Kong government has not done anything about it. So we need to do something about it. And in particular, there was something that Hong Kong since 1994 should have done about it, but didn't. And it's Article 23 of that basic law. So... Article 23, and think of it a little bit like a, a constitution, right? So it's not the law itself, but it required laws to be made. And Article 23 says, quote, Hong Kong shall enact laws on its own to prohibit any act of treason, secession, sedition, subversion against the central people's government, aka Beijing, or theft of state secrets to prohibit foreign political organizations or bodies from conducting political activities in the region and to prohibit political organizations or bodies of the region from establishing ties with foreign political organizations or bodies. So Hong Kong was supposed to pass legislation about this, but multiple times, first in 2003, massive protests against, against this kind of legislation stopped the bills from being passed. And 
Uh, what that meant was that Hong Kong never actually got around to to creating the uh, you know the, the security legislation that was required by Article 23 of its basic law of its essentially constitution. And so what happens is Beijing sitting there going, well, they should have passed it. They tried many times to pass it. Hong Kong's culture of a protest, because, you know, the Hong Kong people don't have total say in their own legislature, um, shut down the city multiple times to stop these security laws from being passed. And China says, you know, their perspective is enough is enough. These guys are talking about seceding and getting American help to do it. We're done. And they actually use a loophole in Article 18 to enforce this, this national security legislation onto Hong Kong uh, because Hong Kong didn't build their own version of it. And uh, so what that, what that means is Hong Kong now, of course, has a much harsher version of a national security law than they would have had had they passed it themselves. Not laying any blame here, but that's, that's the... You know, that's the way that China built its way to, you know, that Beijing built its way to passing this, to, you know, pushing this legislation itself. And so now with a little bit of background on how the 19th century unfolded and how China was forced by Great Britain to essentially open its market to the world for illicit drugs, um, you, you can kind of get a sense for how red flags are going off in Beijing's mind. But that's not the only reason why China is so concerned about secessionist tendencies in Hong Kong, because there are other regions in China that um, are not majority Han. And, uh, you know, the, the conception of Chinese nationalism really does essentially place uh, Hans above others. Um, there's, we can have a bit of a conversation about that, but Eric, generally Huns are seen as superior to like Uyghurs, right? Well, yeah. And, and the, the way I've heard it always pronounced is Han. And so, and, and which I, I you know, they, you could pronounce it multiple ways depending on when it's Mandarin or, or, or such, but just to disambiguate from Hun, like Attila the Hun. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. Right. So the, H-U-N. yeah, the, so the Han Chinese are now what's, what's interesting is, is. China is always allowed for a pretty broad definition of who is Han Chinese. And it's essentially that the ethnicity has, has even more to do with how you act um, than it does what your genetics are. Because the genetics across northern southern China are, you know, vary, vary a, f- a fair amount, um, especially northeast China. And even when, you know, like, you know, when Genghis Khan takes over the northern part of China and Kublai Khan takes over the rest of China and Kublai Khan is ruling China, well, eventually what happens is the Mongols become, well, just another Chinese, you know, they just, a few generations later, they're just another dynasty. And the, you know, the, all the Mongolian genes that had mixed up with the population there were considered Han. So essentially, if you, like, if you walk like a duck and you quack like a duck, you're a duck. And, and some, you know, someone's going to get cranky with me about that, but it's been, that's my best interpretation of it. But for example, the Uyghurs don't want to be like the Chinese, they are, right. they are Muslims. They have their own traditions of you know, certainly the Tibetans are Buddhist and have their own traditions and are unwilling to be like these Chinese, uh, these Han Chinese. And, and that's the, that's the way that, that's the way that this ethnicity, this ethno-nationalism is, is somewhat defined. Right. So it's not exactly straightforward. And th- thanks for adding the, uh, the detail yeah, to that. 
But the, the the reason I brought it up is because there are these regions in China that have majority uh, populations of other types of people and other types of prevailing ideas, such as Xinjiang and the Uyghurs and um, Tibet. And, you know, a lot of these territories have kind of fallen in and out of China's possession over the course mm-hmm. of history. Um, so that's also on China's mind, because if things start falling out of its control, then it fears, uh, you know, cracking along regional lines, which has also happened a lot in its history. Um, so now you kind of have an idea of what immediately drove Beijing to push this NSL through right now. And why Beijing is so fearful about secessionist tendencies, both in, in Hong Kong and other parts of mainland China. Right. China. So maybe now it makes sense to go back to the NSL and talk a little bit more about what some of the potential implications are for Hong Kong now. Because we talked a little bit about what the police are now allowed to do. And there's some more that we want to touch on that's worth mentioning. So, um, for example... Uh, you pulled up this article from the Hong Kong Free Press, yeah. which, again, links in our show notes. And if you're in our newsletter, you'll get it. And one of the things that Chinese police are now allowed to do in Hong Kong is search uh, people both digitally, their digital you know, possessions, their phones, et cetera, et cetera, as well as physically without warrants. The police can freeze people's assets uh, just on suspicion and, again, suspicion on things that are as broad as subversion and can also intercept communications and introduce a number of internet controls. And speaking of internet controls, uh, a lot of US-based um, you know, tech companies have since es- essentially shut down all requests um, from Hong Kong for um, digital communication. So WhatsApp is, for example, and that's owned by Facebook, trying to you know, wipe his hands of the situation and just not get involved at all. But more of that is almost certainly coming. And the trade-off that a lot of U.S. and, well, non-Chinese companies are are essentially going to have to answer for themselves now is, is the access to uh, relatively affordable manufacturing capacity in China, as well as the Chinese consumer market, worth the increased tensions and political difficulties that I'm going to encounter by staying in China, by keeping operations in China, and so on and so forth. And I want to read a quote from um, my my former coworker Philip Orchard. He wrote a piece. This is actually back in, tw- in October 2019. So this set of protests were already happening, but it was a little while ago. And I, because I really think it, it clearly lays out the trade-off between sort of business and political risk that a lot of um, foreign companies are going to have to start encountering in China. So Philip wrote, still, if Beijing begins to truly fear widespread contagion from the protests in the mainland, China's concern about spooking foreign investors or derailing trade talks with the U.S. won't be enough to stop it from restoring stability in Hong Kong the hard way. This would intensify Beijing's isolation and thus worsen its economic and political pressures at home. But from the CPC's viewpoint, the Chinese Communist Party, at least it would survive to be able to try to solve them, meaning the other economic and political pressures that it continues to, to, to run into. So establishing order, uh, <laughs> law and order, right? Yeah. Um, in, Dominate in the Hong streets Kong, of Hong Kong. Exactly. Is, is a priority for Beijing, even if it means that it will not be receiving the same influx of foreign capital right. in through Hong Kong as it has been receiving in times past. And I saw... I think it was from, it might have been that same article that, that Philip wrote, 
that shows where uh, foreign investment enters China from different regions. And Hong Kong isn't the first, but it's like second or third by only, you know, like one or two billion dollars. And it's like three hundred and sixty five billion dollars of foreign investment comes into China. And it's one of the largest sources of foreign investment into China. And remember, Hong Kong's population is seven and a half million people and China's is one point four. Right. So there is an outsized amount of foreign capital that comes into China, which China needs right now for other reasons that are kind of outside the scope of this podcast. And it seems like it's probably going to be willing to incur a little bit of economic or capital flow pain in exchange for ensuring that it has physical possession of Hong Kong. Right. Yeah. And actually, one thing one thing you made me think of was this was all of the secondary risks of Hong Kong becoming like de facto independent, right? Let's just say, let's say somehow China was like, well, it's not, it's not worth it to, you know, go crack skulls and, and go all, you know, go all black and tan on, on the Hong Kongers. You know, we'd look too bad or, or maybe, you know, we'd have a moment of conscience, God forbid. What could happen if Hong Kong, you know, started moving away from China? Well, it starts to give other people ideas for one, right? Taiwan goes, you know, the, the pro-independence movement in Taiwan goes, well, if they can do it, you know, they're bloody attached to China. We can do it too. We have our own bloody military, right? And Tibet starts going, huh, I wonder if it's time for us to, you know, so, so it's, you know, it's the kind of thing that, that people start getting ideas. Like we, we saw in the United States, when enough people start protesting, everyone else starts protesting too. And it becomes a, you know, it becomes a nationwide phenomenon. and so. There's a bit of a there's a bit of a slippery slope argument, which is actually probably fairly reasonable that if if we let Hong Kong get away with this for too long, other people are going to start getting ideas and then it becomes uncontrollable. And then and for China, ultimately, the the perspective I have on it comes from Professor Fravel's uh, Strong Nations or Strong Nations Secure Border, I believe, book. Which um, it's it's you know whenever you hear four words together it's probably a, a Chinese ism, and it's an it's an ism of a of a policy in China, strong nation secure borders, where China has defined what it says its borders are. They're like it's here, and they've actually been fairly consistent about it since 1949 at the end of the civil war. And Taiwan is part of it, and Hong Kong is part of it, and Tibet and Xinjiang are part of it. I'm not actually sure about the South China Sea, but whatever. Um, and so for them, it's. Like they have a line in the sand. It's very clear. This is ours and you shall not touch it. And think of how intolerable it would be for China to let God, God forbid, like foreign powers put a navy on Taiwan or Hong Kong. You know, that the, the security risk is absolutely gargantuan for them. So this, you know, so as we understand China's history, the pain it's gone through, and what it's defined and telegraphed to the world to be its its very clear national security overwhelming prerogative, you know, we 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 look back and we go, well, maybe we're not so surprised that you know when when Hong Kongers are you know, and and again, not blaming these these folks at all. Um, I I my heart my heart reaches out to them, but. When they're waving American and British and UK flags and chanting independence for Hong Kong, China starts freaking out a little bit and, and responds in this way. And what it means, so to get back to the law itself, you know, what it what it means ultimately is that is that this law has violated much of the Hong Kong basic law. Um, and many of the civil rights that are laid out there have been have been violated. And and that's part of why people see this as the end of 
autonomy for Hong Kong? Is that China said, you know, we don't even care about the basic law anymore. We're just going to pass the law that we need and or that we feel like we need to exert national security. And well, guess what? Uh, you're now, um, you know, you're now essentially part of the Chinese totalitarian state because, um, you know, as as some uh, legal scholars in Hong Kong are saying, quote, they can accuse you of anything they want because the crimes listed are so broad. And in fact, they are so broad that uh, as a form of protest, because because criticizing the government is a form of subversion, so you can't criticize the government. So as a, you know, how could you possibly protest? Well, people were protesting with blank placards and were arrested for for silently protesting with blank placards. So standing there with with pieces of white piece of paper is a crime um, because of some of the wording of the law. And what is included in this text that the police are running around with these purple banners um, warning people about is, quote, you are uh, displaying flags or banners, chanting slogans, or conducting yourselves with an intent such as secession or subversion, which may constitute offenses under the HKSAR, national security law, you may be arrested and prosecuted. And so there's this breadth you know, of conducting yourself with an intent such as secession or subversion, right? You could sit there and be like, yeah, well, these people protesting with the blank placards have the intent to subvert you know, the, the authority of the government by disagreeing with it openly, even though they're not saying anything, they're able to be, it's, it's so, but, but like, you know, you, you get the truly kind of Orwellian nature of this thing that standing there quietly with a piece of paper, um, a blank piece of paper can get you arrested and thrown in jail. Yeah. And there's other Orwellian bits to it as well. Right. One that really struck me is if you do happen to get arrested, the Hong Kong police, there have been reports of the Hong Kong police taking DNA samples uh, of people who were arrested on, on some of these charges like secessionism and subversion. And you can bet that with their new massive surveillance apparatus that they've been constructing and trying out over the last couple of years, you know, for example, as it relates to their uh, social credit monitoring system mm-hmm. or anything that's going on in Xinjiang, they're going to be keeping track of folks that they round up right now, right? It's it's a very clear indication that if you are arrested right now, you will be monitored and tracked for an indeterminate amount of time. And who knows what sort of risk that may imply for you in the future. So how is the world reacting to this? You know, basically, uh, as we mentioned, Western democracies are seeing this law as the end of Hong Kong's autonomy, right? It used to be a, a semi-autonomous region since for the last 23 years, got special treatment from the West, and most of the West, including the G7, has declared that this is no longer the case. Xander, I know we've got a bunch of examples up here. So perhaps unsurprisingly, there are some actors that are using this as an opportunity to you know, make at least the, the, the symbolic gesture of opening their arms to Hong Kongers. So the UK, for example is offering a path of citizenship to a number of Hong Kongers, nearly half. Basically, anyone who was born before the handover occurred in 1997. Taiwan, perhaps unsurprisingly, is um, letting whoever can make it to Taiwan, basically, uh, to stay there. The um, president of Taiwan, Tsai Ing-wei, made an announcement that said, you know, Taiwan will continue to support the Hong Kong protesters and will to any extent that it can, go beyond symbolic gestures and actually offer easy paths to 
if not citizenship in Taiwan, then finding at least some sort of asylum or refuge for Hong Kongers fle- fleeing to Taiwan for political reasons. Um, as far as the U.S. goes, the U.S. is ending its special status with Hong Kong that had, to this day, essentially allowed Hong Kong to trade with greater leniency than China is often able to because China is not considered to have, have an open economy. And Hong Kong is, from here forward, just going to be treated as another part of China when it comes to U.S. trade policy. And as we mentioned, how capital flows, how foreign capital comes into China from different places, the change in the status of, uh, for Hong Kong could potentially materially impact foreign capital that mm. comes into China. That might be a challenge that Beijing has to deal with. Um, in the U.S., as far as the legislature goes, there is bipartisan congressional support. Surprise, there's bipartisan something today. Uh, wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, bipartisan congressional support uh, to grant refugee status to Hong Kongers who are, who are able to get out and come to the U.S. And then, I, as I already mentioned, some um, U.S.-based uh, technology companies such as, such as WhatsApp and Facebook, also Telegram are refusing data requests made by uh, the Hong Kong government or Hong Kong law enforcement. So what's ultimately going to happen uh, based on these reactions? I, I, I think we very much doubt that, you know, we're, we're not in the geopolitical forecasting service, but we very much doubt that China is, that these consequences are enough for China to go like, oh, but never mind. In part because of what we just described about China's overriding national security uh, or, or geo, you know, geopolitical prerogative. Um, if it backed down, it, it would be a major sign of weakness um, that that could actually, you know, backfire big time. So, um, you know, a lot of ways is Hong Kong lost as a, you know, as an autonomous region and a and a beacon of democracy in on the Chinese landscape. And the answer is probably yes. And uh, it's just hard to see this as being reversible. And I've seen a number of criticisms of Johnson and Trump um, essentially saying, you know, because these guys are incompetent um, and and or they're distracted internally with with politics and the coronavirus, um, all sorts of stuff that they lost Hong Kong, that a that a more competent pair of leaders in the United States and the UK could have held on to Hong Kong. And, you know, we're not going to opine too broadly on on whether or not that's true. However, we want to add some some context here about you know ab- about this because I think the 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 counterfactual is that well China wouldn't dare do this if it was let's just say Obama or Bush or Blair or May in charge, right? And um, you know, but ultimately we we did talk about the increased pressure on China uh, because of these the nature of these protests. Um, and so there's kind of more reason, more reason now than there was before for them to act in this way. But I think we also just want to point out that, you know, that China has taken a number of steps towards this, um, you know, bit by bit, which we'll talk about in a sec, but it, but is always a very China way of doing things is just like take a little nibble at a time, just enough to just enough to not get people to lose their minds. And uh, and this happened during the Obama and, and May administrations, right? So in 2013, the protest group Occupy Central tries to pressure the PRC into enacting universal suffrage and democracy in, in Hong Kong based on the basic law. 
And Hong Kong just says, or sorry, uh, the PRGC just says, nope, we're going to maintain, you know, we're, we're going to maintain our ability to control the legislature, even though it's, even though the basic law says otherwise. In 2014, Beijing further restricts who can vote and what they can vote for. So uh, shrinks the democracy, the, you know, the democratic participation in Hong Kong, the umbrella revolution rises up against that, is violently put down and fails. And this was in reaction to a 2007 plan where China agreed, where Beijing agreed that there would be universal suffrage and more open elections with more elected seats for legislative council in 2017. And in 2014, Beijing unilaterally kind of squashed that and, and moved it back, in fact, the other way, right? Just said, you know what? Never mind. It'll be less democratic, not more. That was 2014. And they, you know, they got away with it. In 2016, you know, during further protests, uh, the Legislative Council gets um, a big pro-democracy group that could pass some pro-democratic legislation. And Beijing just uh, unilaterally disqualifies six of these lawmakers um, in the elected half of it and uh, edges out the pro-democracy majority. Uh, and then in 2017, you know, technically, I, I think it was Trump in May at the time, a bunch of folks were imprisoned for unlawful assembly even before even before the security law was passed. So we see this like we see this creeping that Beijing has been going through to limit the ability, you know, over the past 10 years, limit the ability of um, Hong Kongers to enact their own law uh, to represent themselves and, uh, you know, and, and thereby exert more and more control over Hong Kong. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, it seemed pretty clear from the last 10 years that, that, you know, Beijing was, was working its way in this direction, you know, fairly aggressively. Right. So in other words, the unfolding of what's happening in Hong Kong just doesn't fit neatly into U.S. or U.K.-based partisan narrative. Exactly. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem yeah. to be particularly to have much to do with with which president or which prime minister is in charge of the U.K. or the United States. And, and it's hard. I think I haven't seen a whole lot of arguments for what a you know, more competent or, or more assertive leader would be able to do. Um, in response to to get China to pull back after it after it launched that bill, right? Because it didn't telegraph that the bill was coming. It launched it, forced everyone to react. And you know what what kind of reaction could the U.S. or U.K. have to get China to take this unprecedented movement of actually withdrawing that bill after it was passed and say, "Oops, never mind." You guys can protest yeah. and say independence for Hong Kong all you want. Uh, it just seems. It just it just seems like a dodgy argument to me. Yeah, I, I basically agree with that. So this last bit of the episode, we want to kind of take a step back from detailing how the Hong Kong protests came about to make a, what I think is probably a necessary comparison mm. just because it's, it's so obvious and it's so um, front and center of what's going on in the U.S. right now of looking at how the Hong Kong, Hong Kong protests may compare or may not compare to the protests that have been going on in, U in the U.S. following the murder or, or killing of George Floyd in, in late. Protests have still been going on. They have been very large. And I think sometimes just before even getting at the underlying causes of an event, sometimes it's helpful to just benchmark like what empirical observations you can make about them. And sometimes 
you know, those empirical observations are hard to make because, you know, when you're dealing with millions and millions of people, it's hard to keep track of all that. But in the U.S., some polls have estimated that about 25 million Americans may have participated in Black Lives Matter protests just since Memorial Day. This is not, you know, back, uh, including uh, starting in 2014 after what happened in Ferguson. This is just in the last month and a half. And some political analysts um, are saying that, and when I say political analysts, I'm not talking about like people who write for CNN. I'm talking about professors, like political scientists are saying that this is an order of magnitude greater measurably than the number of people that participated in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So that's, think about that for a second. That's quite massive. Um, Now, in terms of the actual size of of the individual protests, I came across a map that showed a number of protests. I don't think it was comprehensive, and it may be a little old, but the largest single protest I saw in the U.S. over the last month and a half has been about 150,000 people. Now, you look at Hong Kong, and remember earlier in the episode, we mentioned that the police's lowball estimate of the June 2019 protest was 340,000 compared to prospectively millions. Now, there are much fewer people in Hong Kong, right? There can't be 25 million Hong Kongers protesting because there's only seven and a half million Hong Kongers. But when we're talking about the scale of people turning out into streets, into the streets, in a way, it feels comparable. It is mm. a substantial part of the population. In Hong Kong, it seems like as a percentage of the population, it's more. But if 25 million Americans were out on streets in the course of a month and a half, that's almost 10% of the population. And certainly more than that as a percentage of the adult population. Personally, it, it was hard for me to ignore. Now I'm, I'm moving past just like what were the sizes and who were involved. But it's when you look at the videos of the Hong Kong police cracking down on protesters, it is hard to ignore a, a number of similarities just in terms of actions that were taken um, uh, against protesters in the U.S. And, you know, I'm sure that there is a law enforcement listener who goes, yeah, of course, because there are crowd control tactics that are shared irrespective of the political regime. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that that has something to do with this. But, you know, police officers in both of these cases have more closely resembled soldiers than domestic law enforcement. Like if you watch videos of police involved in the civil rights movement and controlling crowds back then, more often than not, they just look like cops walking a beat. Occasionally you had National Guardsmen, but today it is heavily armored it looks like infantry but police officers are riding around in weapons of war weapons that were originally built for war that were subsequently sold to uh, domestic law enforcement agencies something similar going on in hong kong with their police officers um, there are lots of video uh, footage of domestic law enforcement in both hong kong and the u.s of police officers um, shooting rubber bullets paintballs tear gas canisters at protesters often in a lot of these video videos it really seems like those actions were unprovoked by the protesters, aside from their presence. There was a, a really insightful article written by uh, Jiayang Fan. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but she is a Chinese-American staff writer at The New Yorker, and we'll have a link to her article. And she was present for a lot of the Hong Kong protests, but lives in New York City. So, of course, was present for a number of the Black Lives Matters protests that occurred in the last month and a half. And she recounts her personal experiences in both, and, you know, uh, she at one point has a family member who's living in China cautioning her living in the U.S. about speaking out against the U.S. government. And one one part of this this article that was really interesting to me was that Fan does draw a line between the U.S. and China in terms of press freedoms. And she really says, look, 
Um, you hear the same thing from both sides, but in my experience, having been there, having been subject to state oversight in these two countries, it is uh, quite different that uh, the U.S. really does have a tradition of press freedom that is much different than China and feels safer writing here. But she does admit that she feels concerned with the way that things have been going under the Trump administration. So hearing that sort of measured response to that question from someone with the perspectives of both sides was interesting to me. Mm. Definitely recommend uh, going and checking uh, Jiayang Fan's article out. So closing thoughts here. I think the, you know, we usually like to have a reconsider moment. And I think some sometimes we in we go into shows that are much more informative where, you know, where we're just providing context, right? And and I feel like we did a good job at that here. So I think a lot of people are going to walk away going like, huh, you know, okay, that makes a lot. I, I now understand this much better. And I understand the potential implications and what led up to it. But I think if there is a reconsider moment, it is it is that, you know, this isn't just a isolated incident, right? This isn't ju- the, the, you know, the protests are not an isolated incident and the, and the national security law is not and not just a kind of knee jerk response to it. This is part of a now 70 year old, you know, 70 year, lo- year, 70 year long, very clear, fairly consistent Chinese policy about um, its territorial integrity and and its need to prevent internal unrest, right? Because um, one of the things we didn't mention here, but, but gets mentioned a lot is that mass internal unrest usually leads to a divided and weak China, which usually leads to it being dominated by a foreign power or at least split up, right? So, so this has been a very consistent policy of China's. And, you know, kind of looking back, you know, I was as surprised as anyone when it happened, but kind of looking back, you go, okay, I, I see it. And China was very clearly one way or another going to you know, going to bring Hong Kong into the fold, right? It, it was it looking back, it was not just going to let Hong Kong hang out there and and keep going, yeah, democracy, right? And so great, uh, you should, you know, hey, you should try it. And and China has always been willing to put up with a substantial amount of pain in the short term for its long term goals. It's got a long memory. It's got a long horizon. Um, you know, long along. It's it is not a myopic country, right? It plays the long game, and China is just playing the long game here. And and you know, my personal opinion is that it's tragic for the people of Hong Kong. I mean, for you know, I can only imagine. You know, I feel like a lot of my freedoms over my life have been have been eroded, but but having them stripped away that quickly, um, and having to live in fear that I may have spoken out in the past, right, and and just be scooped up thrown in thrown in jail and and have a uh trial behind closed doors and sentence for life for speaking out um is awful but but it also very much seems like the you know the chinese way yeah i think for a lot of china watchers and china experts this development has essentially been inevitable uh, certainly since the handover occurred in 1997, ultimately China is just so much bigger and more powerful than Hong Kong that, and its history, the, the history between the two so intermixed and so critical and s- such a, a essential part of how China views its history of the last 150 years that it, w- it was inevitable at some point for China to seek to reincorporate Hong Kong into its now single system. And, you know, of course, it wants to do this with Taiwan as well, but Taiwan is further separated. 
uh, by water and has its own military that is much less powerful than Beijing's, but you know, it's still there. So it's, it is um, a sad day for a lot of people uh, in, in Hong Kong, unfortunately, but it was also almost certain that Beijing would attempt to do this at some point when the moment proved as advantageous as it can. Yeah. And I do wonder, you know, how many Hong Kongers going to take the UK up on its offer for a path to citizenship and just, you know, boogie on out of there. I think it's a, it's a clever move. And what's interesting, of course, is that, you know, if you think of, you know, conventional family chain migration, how many kids of these folks would be able to tag along? And could you see kind of a almost a turn? You know, there are pro pro Beijing folks in Hong Kong, and and probably there are there are people who are fairly apolitical, and they just go like, "Look, I'm so much. I am I'm rich, and this is great, and I'm just going to roll with it." But to what extent would you see kind of a a rollover um, of you know of of the citizen? Well, it's not. I mean, calling calling Chinese Chinese folks citizens in the same way that we think of ourselves is is a bit of a misnomer, but. Um, but Chinese nationals, um, you know, would you have a rollover to to a lot more pro Beijing Chinese nationals just moving in and and taking over as as the more freedom loving Hong Kongers get up and get the heck out? You know, that would be in some ways I think my preferred outcome um, that the people who want to live free can do that, and and the people who grew up in China that that you know if they're happy enough with their situation and want to just you know roll in and and keep making you know, making Hong Kong work, I guess that would, I guess that would be all right too, but it is a, it is a tough day. So I think at at that, we'll put a pin in the episode, but we do want to remind folks who uh, have been long-term listeners that we do have a Patreon page. Patreon, it allows our listeners to support the podcast. And so far we're just reinvesting all of the funds that come into the Patreon back into the podcast for marketing or just administrative costs like hosting the website and you know all of those sorts of good things or improving but if you've been listener- the website which if you haven't checked oh. it out you should go check it out because it's much improved we've made it easier than ever to access our now five years worth of content both podcasts and articles it's all there on the website at reconsidermedia.com We've also been much better lately about um, just reaching out to the consider community not just sharing when new podcasts yeah. come out but but um, telling you a little bit more about who we are and our backgrounds and how we came to kind of like uh, this point where we're hosting, you know, a podcast about politics and why we think about certain things the way we do. Uh, if you sign up for our newsletter uh, on reconsidermedia.com, we're, we're sharing all of that sort of information with you about us and some articles on how to have better political conversations that we actually wrote several years ago, but we've just not promoted particularly well, the reconsider principles and discussion strategies. So Check out the website, sign up for the newsletter. And if you have been a listener for a long time, we would really appreciate your bucket show at patreon.com slash reconsider. It will be of great help. And we'll and we'll make good use of it. So let's get out of here. Been a pleasure as always, everyone. Looking forward to the next show. And this is Eric signing up. Oh gosh, I forgot. I forgot. Tagline. 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 Ah. All right. Don't let the pundits do the thinking for you, friends. This is Eric signing off. Oh my gosh, I screwed up. Xander (laughs) signing. (laughs) You want to do it again? I can't believe it. No, we've got to leave like this. This this is how we're signing off. So uh, this is Eric signing off uh, in shame. (laughs) Until next time, folks. Bye.
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.